co-founder of the British Blacklist. And I'm here with the wonderful, please introduce yourself. My name is Ekwam Sangi. I am a filmmaker, a writer, director, and producer. And I tell stories. I tell stories about people. What one word or sentence would you use to describe your life at this very moment in time? Magical. My world is quite magical at this time. It's come a long way. <laughs> As we were discussing before we got officially into this, on our, our shared name, even though it's different pronunciation, I was going to add that I haven't had such a comfortability, if that's a word, comfortability with my name since, in a sense forever really, because when I grew up, it was, people found my name ridiculous to pronounce. And then um, I always say, I met my daughter's dad and in the early 2000, in 2000 or whatever, and um, his family, they've also gone in, called me Akua. So I started adopting Akua because saying my name was Akua to people, sometimes something about it, they could say it better than Akua. So I started saying Akua, so I've said Akua for my daughter's 20 now, for pretty much 20 years of her uh-huh. life. And now there are a few more Akuas in the world. So people are saying, oh, Akua, I know an Akua. I'm like, where were you guys when I was, you know, slightly embarrassed of my name and felt really difficult to explain. And so now I literally, within a sentence, I could say Akua, Akua. I flip-flop between like I'm bilingual. I'm so not, but <laughs> it is what it is. But um, I love the story about how you got your name. Could you could you um, say it again for us, please? Yeah, I was born in um, California in the Bay Area. My parents were Fulbrights at the time. And, you know, there was a big sort of mix of African students and international students where we lived and our neighbors were Ghanaian. I was born on Wednesday. Akuya is a girl born on Wednesday in Ashanti. And also in our language, I'm from Tanzania, my family is, Ku Ekwa means to be initiated. And I was born between my mom's graduation and her, her final paper and her graduation. So I was initiated, I'm a woman, and I was born on Wednesday. So I've always been Ekwa because my parents were doing it differently and it's spelled differently. Yeah. But whenever I would meet Ghanaian people, they'd be like, no, it's Akuya. And I'm like, I know, I get it. <laughs> Oh, we do say, but that's like the Akua Akua. My mum's furious because she's like, your name is Akua. And I'm like, yeah, but mum, you don't know the Western struggle I've had. And Akua, they're Ghanaian. They say Akua. So I'm not like, did you ever feel like you had to change your name? Because I know in my early days of going to school, I called myself Anna. This is when I was really young. I was like, my name is Anna. Uh-huh. I, I prefer that you address me as such. <laughs> I mean, well, no, I grew up. I grew up in Kenya, um, which is has British influence, sure. ex-British colony. And so everyone in school, everybody uses their Christian name. Yeah. And my Christian name was Aqua. And so all the teacher, I, so I, every every class was always this conversation of, but yeah, but what's your Christian name? I'm like, I know, but it's Aqua. It really is Aqua. My grandmother's name, which usually tends to be your African name, my grandmother's name is Hana. So some people, it would just be like, all right, just go with Hana. But that's not really my name. My name is Equa. And so now, you know, at this point in my life, at the time, it was just, there wasn't another option. So it was just like, listen, deal with it, Equa. Now, at this point in my life, I find a lot of my friends from back in the day, all the Jessicas and Amandas and whoever, are now using their grandmother's name and sort of taking on that identity, which is amazing. Um, it's also difficult because I'm like Jessica and she's like no I go by blah 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 and I'm like oh I love that I respect that go with it 
for me, it actually ended up being, like I was saying, I, you know, there weren't there weren't any other echoes when I grew up. So it was a little bit of a stamp for me. Everybody who ever met me when I was a kid remembers me because there were no other echoes. And it wasn't until I came to New York where there are a lot of West Africans here and everyone was like, oh, Akuya, Akua, Equal, Ika, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, there's like a whole variety. <laughs> what year did you come to New York? How old were you? I came to New York at 18, going 19. That was in 98. Oh, okay. Um, it was a very different world. I was in California for a year before that. Nobody even knew like East Africa. I mean, in general, America's relationship with Africa tends to be a lot more West Africa centric. East Africa is a little bit more old school, like people who are in like the Peace Corps or something like that, or Black Panthers. Um, but there are not a lot of people who are down with, they know some things like Mount Kilimanjaro, Zanzibar, you know, some names, but West Africa is where people tend to have done more pilgrimages too. I think in hindsight, it's always in hindsight, I'm so glad my mom did not give me the typical African Christian name. She yeah. said, no, your name is Akria and that's what we're going to, and you know, the identity is real right now. Like I wouldn't have it any other way. And my exactly. daughter has a Ghanaian name and she couldn't change it. She dared tell me she wanted to change it. So <laughs> But um, you're, you know, actually, you kind of touched on something I, I was coming to later in our conversation. And it was that thing about the African experience now being realized on screen in a way that has never been done before, even though we've had less. And I, you know, I know some people hate the titling or the grouping of our film, our stuff as world cinema, but that's where it was kind of pushed aside. It's world cinema, it's foreign, sure. it's outside. But now we're having this realization of who we are as Africans yeah. on screen that it's amazing. And even when you speak, I am very West African. So I'm, I'm West African Western on top. <laughs> so I'm ignorant to any other part of my continent than my Ghana. And, you know, I have a bit of um, prideful, egotistical arrogance that Nigerians are dominating. However, <laughs> what I was, I mean- yeah. I wasn't gonna say it, but okay. <laughs> But it's, it's, a, it's a fact. I'm I'm very honest about it. I have Nigeria. Obviously, I have Nigerian friends, and we we you know we're all a hodgepodge yeah. together. When you're in the West, you you know we just get on with it. But it is um it's a wonderful thing that's happening. How do you feel? I feel so excited. I feel so excited. Cool. I came to film school because I decided to be a filmmaker because I grew up watching all imported content. We didn't have any local content other than news and like one or two little slapstick comedy type shows, mm. but. I was surrounded by these colorful, funny, interesting, dramatic people all the time. It's my family alone. It's just like total drama. <laughs> and I was never seeing that reflected anywhere on the screens. You know, we watched Rambo for like 10 years straight. And I just got really frustrated with it. So eventually I was like, that's it. You know, my dad was like, stop complaining go make your own films. I was like, fine, I will make my own films. And so, so I came to film school with that kind of like arrogance and anger, but not knowing what I was getting myself into. And it was hard. It was very, very hard because this was also, you know, 98. This was pre-YouTube, pre-internet, pre like I'm social media. I'm seeing what people are doing all over the world. So there wasn't any, unless you're a person who goes to world cinema type things. And really world cinema in New York is like French, Polish, yeah. Norwegian, it's everybody else. Unless you go to an African cinema, something or other, African film festival. Um, and most 
folks don't do that. And so the stories that I was trying to tell as a film student, none of my teachers knew what I was talking about. It was just like, you know, it just wasn't gelling with their idea and their understanding of African people and who we are, what we do. It's just like, what, what are you talking about, chick? So by the end of my film school, you know, like my fourth year, I was actually really, really just kind of like, I don't think this is gonna work. I don't, I, I'm gonna have to figure something else out because I don't think filmmaking is it. Too bad I have all these loans. Um, and it wasn't until that final year that there was a professor in Africana studies, Mantia Diawara, who gave a class on African cinema. And then I got to meet all of these filmmakers who had been working for decades, most of them in West Africa, yeah. Senegal, Burkina, you know, just a lot of the Francophone countries because they got a lot of French money to make films. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my, so this is where everybody is. So it was really just a matter of like, okay, I get it. A, there's a group of folks that I can hang out with and I've just been talking to the wrong people. I've been trying to convince you people and explain to you people for all of this time who we are, why we are. I don't have to do that. I can just go talk to these people. Y'all will have to catch up. It's cool. Um, and so that that was the pivot that helped me. That is the reason I'm still a filmmaker, literally. And so to therefore come from there to this point now where we're starting to see not only, I mean, because at least with funding from the US there, I wouldn't say like we're being run over by African stories. That's definitely not the case. No, no. When I was doing research for this film, really the only other reference I had was Andrew Dosunmu, mm. um, wonderful, beautiful Nigerian filmmaker who's made beautiful films also about Africans in New York. And that's pretty much it, <laughs> me and okay. Andrew. To be fair, because I mean, he, he did Mother of George, yeah. yeah, he did. And Restless City and um, Where is Cairo is his last film. And I think he has another one coming out this year. And I feel, and sometimes it is in speaking to my own people that I'm like, oh mate, I'm not doing good enough. Um, I need to know more, do more, but it, you, you do get, it's, it's hard unless you have a purpose. And how much of you then, your, was it your authentic story is in mm -hmm. Amor? The story is inspired by a very personal relationship, relationship of an aunt and uncle of mine. I was a flower girl at their wedding <laughs> in the mid nineties. They got married in Tanzania and my uncle, you know, maybe a year and a half after their wedding, got a student visa to come to the US and came with every intention of bringing my aunt and cousin right behind. And to this day, have been stuck in this endless cycle of applying for visas and getting rejections and applying in rejections. Um, and are still very hopeful that one day it will happen. You know, uncle calls every week, he sends money, aunties built a home, cousins in college. But it's kind of, you know, we've seen it. We've seen this happening for years. We've seen what it's done to their lives as individuals, as a family. I would think about this like, well, what if? What if auntie finally got this visa? Where would they even begin at that point, you know? And so that's the story that I wanted to tell. And I had this vision of my uncle at the airport waiting for the family and he's standing there and he's, you know, what is he feeling? What is he thinking? Is, is he gonna recognize them? What's he gonna give them for dinner? Like what's their first meal? You know, like those were the thoughts that I would have for years and years and just thinking about their situation. So that was the challenge that I wanted to sort of put to paper was what would happen if? if this was no longer the issue. As you're saying that, if I did, I did understand the film for sure. Yeah. But if I didn't, in hearing you say that, it unpacks everything that you see uh -huh. on the screen, which is perfect because 
We know this, you know, I have family members, you know, dad's back at home, mum's here or vice versa, usually mum's right. kids, right? So, and you do wonder like, how the hell are you gonna guys come, you know, dad's been left back home or dad's been left here? Cause women, we don't cheat, we don't do anything like that. <laughs> um, but it is like, how do you then just gel back together and everything's normal. And I love with Sylvia, her journey, and yeah. then the religion, because that was my struggle with my mother. We all grew up here. My dad was here. She was here, even though they had separated. But the religion clash we had, man, I was like, mom, you're going to. <laughs> so I, I just seeing those bits, and this is the part, these are the things that make it so important to have our stories on screen. In that, you know, what would happen if, what was the most important realization after the what would happen if that you, you wanted to put? out there for us to see? I guess it's just that it's a journey. And I think that's something that they discovered too, because there's so much of like, oh, it's gonna be, you know, the assumption is that once they're together, once we see them at the airport, the end, you know, climb the mountain, everything's been solved, yay. (laughs) And now we're gonna skip into the sunset and live our happy life. And of course not, that's just the beginning because especially after that much time, they're completely different people. And so even though they are so dedicated to each other and they actually do love each other, you know, so it's not just like, oh God, this woman, she's here, you know, like he actually wants to be with his family. He's been working all his life for this thing. And then you get it and you're like, oh, uh, that's not quite what I, hmm. a <laughs> little different. Okay. I'm trying to roll with the punches. You're a little different, but you know what? I'm also a little different. And that's, the truth for both of them and Sylvia's sort of sitting there between her both of her parents like okay are y'all gonna get this together or what because <laughs> I need you so I can get on with the stuff that I'm dealing with in this world you know I'm trying to I'm trying to have a life here too I think that's what for me was just like the realization that we kind of have to start from scratch and it's not just this happy fairy tale where people run into each other's arms and then they smooch them a smooch and you know, the music swells up in the background and we're done. That's actually just the beginning. And also there's, I think, I think there is this thing that we do from outside that African relationships are like the benchmark of like, you know, the African man, the African woman, that the family is together and we are in love. <laughs> but we have our issues, right? And I, I think being African, I love that Joy Lee's character is the voice of America, Black America. <laughs> fun like you got with you guys and that she's the so the gift and the curse I think because it's that kind of western meets tradition how mm-hmm. much is good for us and how much is not like going to Ghana and seeing a McDonald's I don't want to ever see that but but, but here we are <laughs> yeah what was that uh conversation you wanted to have with the clash of African tradition and American African-American I would say well for that particular character you know Joa's character for me is just like so specifically Brooklyn. I don't know that that person lives in Kentucky, let's say. Okay, fair. You know, like that's Brooklyn, not, like not even Manhattan really. That's kind of really Brooklyn because <laughs> I know that woman so well. And, you know, and I think it's really like the romanticization on both ends. For a lot of African-American people, because of all the reasons, the separation, the oppression, the slavery, the blah, 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 you kind of have to have a romanticization to some degree, you know, of Africa because there isn't, um, because the connection was broken. Yeah. 
right? And then for some people, it looks a particular way. You take on certain names, you learn certain languages and dances and things like that, which is all great. I think that's really beautiful, but it's not necessarily how African people live. And so it's a romanticization on her part, but then on Esther's part too, there's also this romanticization of the West and, you know, how modern and fabulous, you know, you can imagine her, like when she's getting ready to go to the States, like she's putting all her good clothes in and she's imagining what her life is going to be. Not only is she going to the States, man, she's not going to Nebraska, she's going to New York, all right? Yeah. <laughs> she's seen the postcards, she's seen the things, she has all sorts of ideas about what her life is going to be. And she wants to be able to fit in. So she's probably like working on her accent or whatever it is that she's doing because there's a bit of a romanticization of what that life is going to be so I just wanted to sort of play with like both of us are kind of romanticizing about the other person's life it doesn't quite (laughs) it doesn't quite fit either way because you know like they're not living this way these other people aren't necessarily living that way and you just kind of have to meet each other where you actually are you know um, and then I guess that carries through for everybody too, because even with, within the family, there's a bit of a romanticization of what their lives are going to be like and who that person is. When I left Walter, he was this way. Surely he's still the same way. No, he's not, you know, and vice versa. <laughs> and in speaking to, about the cast, you know, Intare, yes, um, Zainab and Jamie, it, it, a beautiful dynamic. And Intare, he has this gravitas. You just, his voice <laughs> is just like, <laughs> yes. But it's just like, how in picking, did you have these guys in mind or was this literally a casting that came good? It was a bit of a casting that came good. I mean, my, when I went into the process, when we started looking for a cast, I really was just like, okay, I just need somebody who can do an accent. Oh God, yeah. Learn this accent. You know, I don't expect that there's many people. I really like no one Angolan actor. Um, but I need someone who can work, like learn this accent because that's really important to me um, and can dance, has some dance ability, accent ability and dance ability. So that's what I was looking for. You know, the good news for me, you know, because initially a lot of my investors, they wanted an A-lister because that's how African films or films with Black people, that's the only way that films with Black people get sold apparently. But things have changed as we were talking about earlier. And so, you know, a lot of the A-listers right now are actually African heritage people, yeah. you know, Chiwetel and Idris and, you know, it's a bunch of folks, which is really great. It used to be you, if you didn't ask Denzel, if you did, Denzel's on your movie, you're not making a movie, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we went through that. It's, it's a little tricky because <laughs> nobody knows me. It was a super low budget film. We're shooting the dead of the summer in New York. Nobody wants to do that for free. Ntari <laughs> is a friend, you know, we're both from East Africa. He's from Uganda and we met several years ago. He's also a filmmaker and our films have traveled together. <clears throat> and so we've been looking for a project to work on together for many years. And so when this came up, I was really excited to be able to offer him the role. Um, And he worked really hard to make it happen. Bless him, him and his family all came to New York while he was shooting. Zainab, we've kind of met at like little parties. We actually live in the same neighborhood and we've met at different events over the years. And I've seen her on stage because she does a lot of theater in New York and she's incredible. But she did come through casting, both her. And then Jamie had just graduated from college from acting school. And so this was her first project ever. You know, what a force (laughs) she is. 
I mean, I mean, and like I said, it really, it, it worked. It really worked. Um, so you, you're a bit of a quadruple, multiple um, threat because you do it all. You write, you direct, you produce. But what's your first love? And then why do you do it all? Well, you know, as an indie filmmaker, you kind of have to do it all because... <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. As an indie filmmaker, we have to do it all. That's why. I do love writing, you know, as young kids, you read a lot and your kids are like, right, write something. And, and that's the example that there is. We have writers, you know, we've had writers across the continent for many years. So people can visualize that. I come from a family of artists. So, you know, my parents were very excited about the idea of me being a filmmaker as a young person. Nobody really knew what that was. So it's just like, you'll make films. It will be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and so stay alive as a filmmaker because nobody comes when you graduate from film school nobody comes to offer you a directing job once you graduate like that doesn't happen you need to have other skills so you develop other skills as a writer as a reader as you know film festivals whatever it is is there something that my first love you know honestly my first love is actually dancing ah i started off as a dancer my my um when I was born, before I was born, when my mother was pregnant with me, my father was fascinated by psychics and they went to a psychic who told them that I was going to be a dancer or some other kind of great artist, but a dancer. And so when I was born, I was in every kind of dance class that was possible, like we could find. Um, and my parents would always tell me the story about the psychic who said I was gonna be a dancer. And so I danced a lot and that's how dance comes into this movie because dance is such a big part of my life. I've never necessarily wanted to be a professional dancer. Like I love dancing, I'm a social dancer, but it's never, you know, at that point, the only kind of professional dancing that was available was ballet and that never really, that didn't really turn me on. So it's just like, I'll just dance for fun over here. So that, and then after that was music. I trained as a pianist for years, you know, Royal School of Music <laughs> for a long time and conducted the choir and like did all of those kinds of things. Cause again, that's what was available to us as kids growing up. That was what we could do. Mm -hmm. um, and I really flourished in that. And then when I took on filmmaking seriously, I didn't have as much time to practice those other things. And so that's why I do film and I try to bring those loves into. So the music, I was very specific about the music that I chose um, and finding those artists, you know, it's all music that I love and the choreography, it was a choreographer that I've been stalking for many years on Facebook who happened to be in New York, which is why I was like, this is just, it's, it was literally just magic and God. And, you know, he came and choreographed all of the dancing in the film. And I was able to bring all of my loves together in this project. I mean, it's amazing. And I, when you said earlier that your dad said, go make a film, I was like, oh, she didn't have the traditional, typical <laughs> You didn't, thank you, bless you. Thank you for that, because. Thank you, <laughs> So, I mean, we talked about, touched on it before about, you know, you know, there's that blind assumption that everybody's Ghanaian or Nigerian and being Tanzanian, I feel like, and this is from a UK perspective, what's good is that with the emergence of African culture being recognised and, and respected and under, starting to be understood, there's a homogenising of the, where Caribbean culture to be so dominant in the UK. Now we've got kids that are mixing patois with pidgin and white kids who are now speaking like African Caribbean kids literally African Caribbean kids, you know, if it would solve racism, hey, wonderful for the new generations, but there's, but then, like I said, my little ego, mm, everyone thinks we're Nigerian. It's not just them, you know, 
but I'm also, you know, I'm lucky because Ghanaians are kind of second in line for the popularity content. Mm -hmm. What would you, it's two things in this question. The homogenizing of African culture is, do you think like it's a good thing that we, at least we have an identity that people can kind of associate with us that stops us being othered? However, then for countries with le less recognition and we do have quite specific individual cultures and traditions that could get lost if all our children are blending into this kind of poster of African culture. Yeah. What do you feel? Yeah, it, the homogenizing does irritate me. <laughs> Because I feel like it's just lazy. It's just like the low hanging fruit where you're like, eh, yeah, some, you know, brown face, colorful clothing. You're African, right? It, this works, right? Just put some clicking in there. Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, <laughs> no, we are not. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it immediately. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, in East Africa in particular, okay, listen, there's certain groups. You could put a brown face and put on some sort of head wrap and you could kind of get away with it. Yeah, there are some groups like that. And then there are some groups that you really can't. Mm -hmm. You know, Black Hawk Down, that movie that came out in the 90s about the Somalis and then they cast a bunch of Haitians. Yeah, they don't look like Somalis in the least. There's nobody who's going to look at that and be like, hmm, those look like some Somalis. No, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> Somalis are very specific looking people. Ethiopians are very, like a lot of us actually are very specific looking people. Yes if you actually paid attention. We're very specific sounding people, you know, and there's a lot of beauty to it too. So it's not just making arguments for argument's sake, but it's like, there's certain ways in which we speak, in which we move, like our bodies move, et cetera, that the differences are actually really lovely to pay attention to in the same way that if I was making a film about fill in the blank American experience, and that took place in Boston. And then I had somebody with a Valley accent coming and playing this Bostonian. Like I would never get a job again as a film director because they would be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Bostonians are very specific. Yeah, you're all Americans, but <laughs> yeah. you have very, you know, a Southern accent versus, a, you know, and even within the South, people have very specific accents, mannerisms, things that they eat, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And people are able to be very specific and take those things very seriously when it comes to films about white people. But when it comes to films about black people, there's a way that nobody has time and it's just like too much research and, and then you just want to smash everybody together and just sell it as like the representative. But also for the most part, <clears throat> the films haven't never really been about us anyways. Mm -hmm. We're just the face in the background or we're the friend who's like, you can do it, sir, or you know, whatever. And so, and so sure, we'll just have some black person in the background saying the line and we're done. Um, but I think, I think we're beyond that, man. I mean, if Black Panther could like go into the specifics and have a whole bunch of different accents and a whole bunch of different costumes and outfits that were so specific like who are you sir who are you <laughs> and who am i if i'm going to represent some african people there is no way that i'm going to you know mush everybody together but it's you know for me it's a it's a joy and it's a pleasure to be able to you know i grew up in the east like i said and so at that time nigerian music wasn't the biggest thing i had missed fela that was 70s I grew up on Congolese music. I grew up on, you know, Angola, like that Congo Angola area. That's what was big. That was, that's what represented Africa. And so the fact that there's so many people who 
have never even heard of Congolese music. I'm like, who are you people? That is really, really huge. And, you know, Angola, because they're Lusophone, they get so much less play, at least in the Anglophone worlds, you know, in the Western Anglophone worlds, but their music is just so dope. And it's like, you need to know, like, not to say, sh not shade to anybody else. I love Afrobeats, they're great, but also, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we do. There's really a whole bunch of other, and I've only touched on one country. We have many countries and yeah. everybody do, does their own thing and it's all hot. It just really is all hot. That's at the end of the day, we're all hot. <laughs> to be fair, is that? Um, I think there's a lot of radio folks who might've thought that a lot of Afrobeats was reggae to begin with. Cause it's like, I don't quite understand what he's saying. And there's kind of a reggae beat, must be reggae yeah. or must be dance hall. And it's like, so it's it's been kind of interesting to like walk down the street and be like, oh, look at them pumping some like Davy Doe or whatever, yeah. um, which is actually great. I don't know that everyone initially knew that they were playing Nigerian music versus Caribbean music. African-American music clearly in America like runs deep. And I mean, those roots are not about to be toppled anytime soon. Yeah. That dominance in the culture is not about to go away. any. so I don't think it's a threat, in yeah. which case we're just enjoying. We're just enjoying, you know, Berna's great and David is great and all of these other people are great. And there's just more, there's just more at the table. Yeah, that's fair. And so then my final question is, what do you hope people get from Farewell Amour and any future projects that we should look out for? You know, aside from wanting to just humanize the immigrant person, sure. an immigrant person, you know, we hear about immigrants as just this like scary group of people who are here to take all our resources and rape our women, which is not true. Just wanting to put a face on it and also change that story a little bit to like, well, let's think about like who these people are and what is it that they're giving up to come to this country to begin with? What gifts do they bring to these countries that they're immigrating to? But really, I just wanted to tell a story about like that showed beautiful Black people, like a family actually working to be together. Cause that's also a story that we don't really get much of. It's always about the careless father who's abusing his wife and his daughters and those kinds of things. Like a man who's trying his best, he's flawed, but he's trying his best. Just being able to, to be at the center of our own stories. I think I had three white people in my film. <laughs> and we had a lot of people in that film, which was amazing. Like we had three diversity picks in our film. <laughs> that was really exciting. And also to see like, like grown consensual sexual intimacy with African people. That's something I've never seen. Yes. Um, and I was really excited about that too. <laughs> I mean, it like, I mean, thank you. The film is, 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 is a joy to watch. And um, I felt seen in the film. And thank you. Like people were seen and expressed yeah. in a way that I'm quite proud of. So well done. And thank you very, very much. Thank for you. Namesake. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> thank you for having me.